This episode contains discussion of sexual and emotional abuse of children and graphic descriptions of childbirth. It is intended for mature audiences only. Please take care while listening. Previously on Murder at Ryan's Run. Uh, a few days before John was murdered, I could see her standing there with a gun that had a long thing like in the front. She turned around really fast and hit it and told me to get the fuck out. Like she- the police didn't show up insisting on talking to anybody? No, and that was the eerie thing. One time with Consuela, I remember somebody said, if she don't do her work, don't stop violating, they're going to put her in the compost. She's only good for a good, strong piece of dirt, which means they're only good enough for death. That had something to do with her wanting her money out of the trust. Not everybody is a cult leader with, you know, who has mind control over 50 to 60 people. Of course, Pam Africa had of International Concerned Family and Friends of Mumia, which is like, was like the biggest Mumia organizing group. My mom's activity is Mumia. Do you think he was a MOVE member on December 9th, 1981? Yes. The moneymaker was Mumia. All of this is about money. <laughs> I'm Beth McNamara, and this is the investigative documentary podcast, Murder at Ryan's Run. So, just to ground you in the timeline, it is Friday, November 22nd, 2002, 53 days after 34-year-old John Gilbride was shot dead in Mapleshade, New Jersey, in front of his apartment by an unknown assailant or assailants. According to official records, John Gilbride's ex-wife and the alleged leader of MOVE, Alberta Africa, applied for a marriage license on November 8th and is now headed to Elkton, Maryland for her secret nuptials to longtime MOVE supporter Gary Wonderland. Alberta's six-year-old son Zachary and Rhea, the alleged second-in-command for MOVE, are along for the trip, along with certain members and supporters that have been given clear instructions that this is an official MOVE activity and it's top secret. 19-year-old devoted supporter Kevin Price, who aspires to be a MOVE member, is invited along. I was explicitly told by Rhea not to talk about it in front of other supporters. So I asked Kevin, why do you think you were specifically selected for this top secret activity? I get the feeling that the reason that I was invited was one, I was so gung-ho. I was also white, which had a lot to do with why Bert wanted me close because she wanted me as older white man in Zach's life that she could have as like an uncle figure. Bert is very conscious of race in very strange ways and she seems to think that people can really only relate to people of their own race. I need to pop in a reminder here that many episodes back we heard from Mario, Maria, Wit and Pixie that Alberta does not believe herself to be a black woman. This is what Maria Africa said in episode one. She is a black woman, but I've heard her several times refer to herself as white. So to move members, Alberta openly refers to herself as white, but supporters are not hearing that from Alberta. So in this instance, Kevin thinks that Alberta views herself as black and he's white and he's there because Gary's white and Zach is white. She was always saying, I need people around Zach that he can relate to, which means white people. So Kevin and longtime MOVE member and MOVE husband to Rhea, Carlos Africa, they are acting as Gary's best men. I remember Carlos talking to him like the way that someone would talk to someone in a sitcom when they're about to get married and they have pre-wedding jitters. He didn't seem happy. He seemed in disbelief in some ways that they were getting married. Mario Africa isn't at the legal ceremony of Alberta and Gary in Elkton, Maryland, because like Wit Africa, he had voiced his disapproval over the idea of them marrying at all. And Alberta didn't want any naysayers there. 
especially ones who could clearly see a pattern in her husband's selection that began with John Gilbride, who was alive just eight weeks ago. Alberta and Rhea have always explained to everyone that Alberta's choices for a mate were predestined by Move founder John Africa, who is alleged to be Alberta's Move husband. This is what Mario was told. There's the prophecies by the charismatic leader. One day when I'm gone, you're going to have to remarry because, you know, Move believes in marriage, one man, one woman. When you remarry, you're going to have to marry a white man. And basically, because you can control them. And this is why Alberta allegedly chose John Gilbride. 20 years her junior, very impressionable, and a white guy. So now, Mario is saying that John Africa's prophecy is being repeated with Gary Wonderland. She reached out and found another person who fit that exact same description. Another white male from the suburbs of South Jersey who had issues with sexuality. Homosexuality in MOVE is not just forbidden. It has been alleged that a person who doesn't identify as heterosexual does not deserve to live and should be cycled, which means killed. Both John Gilbride and Gary Wonderland never identified as gay, and no one has ever said they were gay. Mario and other sources have said that Alberta and Rhea would allege that both John and Gary had homosexual tendencies, that Alberta was able to correct because of the power of John Africa. She has the wisdom of John Africa, and now you get to be stepfather to this son, and I've built your manhood, and I can take it at any point. This is how Lori Allen describes fellow supporter Gary Wonderland. He's a very paranoid and odd guy. I don't know. I just remember after John died, he kept seeing helicopters in the sky. They're out there again. It was a little eerie to see how much he had gained by John's death. When Alberta and Gary got married at the ceremony at King Sussing, did then Gary move into Thornhill with Alberta? Yep. This is Wit Africa. And Rhea had a meeting. She had a talk with everybody. And she told us it won't be no romance. There, It won't be no romance at all. And I'm like, what do you mean? Don't not, didn't none of us have any romance. We just fucking got together. And she's no, Gary going to sleep in his own separate room in Bird. He, he's only getting married for Zach. That's it. That's the only reason why they get him married. The child custody case over Zach was settled October 25th, 2002. Zach's passport was returned to Alberta, and John's parents already have court-ordered visitation. So if Alberta married Gary just to protect Zach from John's parents trying to get custody, then it would make sense to have Gary legally adopt Zach. So I asked Witt about that. Now, did he adopt Zach? <laughs> That's in question for me because I do remember hearing them saying it, that they were going to have him adopt Zach, but I don't remember if they went through with it or what happened. I did a little digging, and on May 6, 2005, Alberta went to court in Camden, New Jersey to legally change both her and Zachary's last name to Gilbridge Wonderland. If Alberta went to all this trouble legally to distance herself from John Gilbride, why did she do Gilbridge Wonderland? Why didn't she just do Wonderland? So with sources alleging that Alberta does not love Gary, let alone even like Gary, and our theory that the legal adoption of Zachary didn't happen, then it brings up the question, why did Alberta marry Gary? And then so quickly and legally, which is not the move way for anyone else, and all in the midst of a highly publicized criminal investigation into the murder of Alberta's ex-husband, John. Could this have anything to do with spousal privilege? In 2002, under New Jersey law, communications between legally married couples 
are protected like communications would be with your lawyer, doctor, or priest. There's the understanding that communications between a spouse and a privileged relationship could cause harm to an individual or the relationship if it's exposed. And in certain circumstances, this confidential information could also lead to an arrest or criminal prosecution. So in either a criminal or civil case, both parties in the relationship must consent to the sharing of that information. Murder investigation aside, Alberta has been very busy planning and holding two wedding celebrations for herself and Gary. And I guess she figured she might as well keep up the wedding bell decorations inside MOVE headquarters and just have one more. So the folding chairs are brought back in and the room again is filled with guests holding cameras. 26-year-old Wit Africa is there with her move husband, Tremaine, and their four children. Pam had invited all, all, all these people. Pam is Pam Africa, MOVE's Minister of Confrontation, and remember, head of the International Concerned Friends and Family of Mumia Abu-Jamal. And Bush was saying, like, I don't understand. I don't know why Pam did that. Bush is the groom's 20-year-old brother, and he is MOVE married to Pam Africa's eldest daughter, 18-year-old Rose. And together they have two children. When Bush is saying to Wit, outsiders have been invited by Pam, he means people without the last name Africa. So this means the supporters, Tony and Lori Allen, Kevin Price and Mega, Bob Massey and Ellie Liz, and Ori Ross. Bush was saying like, I don't know why she would do that because they're not going to understand that. And I'm like, understand what? And he's, Pixie is 12. Yes, Pixie Africa is the move bride. And she believes that on her wedding day that she's actually 13 years old. But since move only has home births and no birth certificates, it's always difficult to independently confirm. So even though Wit remembers Boosh saying Pixie is 12, we're going to go with age 13. The wedding dress Pixie picked out with her mother, Pam Africa, is full length and cornflower blue. She has accessorized it with a fringed white lace shawl, a pearl choker necklace, and a veil headpiece that has strands of pearl-colored beads draping across her forehead and on both sides of her head. Pixie's parents, Pam Africa and Oom, along with every move member and at least half a dozen adult outsiders are all dressed up and taking photos as Pixie descends the stairs, visibly eight months pregnant, to marry the father of her unborn child. He is 19-year-old Dish Africa, born into MOVE. Both he and his two brothers were orphaned very young and brought up by MOVE adults, primarily Alberta and Rhea, who consider themselves to be their mothers. This is Wit Africa, who was at the wedding. Who married them? Bert was the one who married them. She the one married everybody. All the marriages came from her. They would just be like, okay, get together. And if you don't, okay, you kicked out. You can't, you're no, you're no longer welcome. Wit Africa's parents, Debbie and Mike Sr., were in prison for the August 8th, 1978 murder of police officer James Ramp since she was two years old. But when Wit is 14 years old, Alberta Africa allegedly pulls her back into MOVE and then forces her to marry another child born into MOVE, Tremaine. This is when Wit is just 16. But the coercion started when she was 14. You old enough. You have to get married. You should you should be you have three kids by now. Wit alleges that she did not want to quote unquote move Mary or get pregnant and was very vocal about it, but that her own father, Mike Sr., did not intervene and that her own mother, Debbie, was part of the emotional coercion from prison. I didn't even have a boyfriend. I was just thrown into this. I wasn't even ready for kids. 
And then, on the day of pregnant 13-year-old Pixie's move wedding day, Wit says that Alberta brings up her forced wedding ceremony. She was like, oh, this is a lot fancier compared to y'all's wedding, Wit. And I got sick to my stomach because I never want to remember that day. That's a trigger for me. And it's always has been when me and Shemaine had our wedding in the backyard. Get together and take pictures and don't be looking all fucked up and depressed or whatever because we can't have people thinking that somebody's abusing y'all. They actually said that? Bert would say that, yeah. So it's no wonder that Wit is feeling triggered on 13-year-old Pixie's wedding day. Pixie looked like I fucking felt. I remember thinking to myself, this is terrible. This is fucking terrible. I mean, her eyes, she looked so sad. You always know that nobody wants to do this. And Deesh told me himself he didn't want it. I could just tell that she didn't want it. And Buck looked like he was fucking hurt. When he learned that she was pregnant, oh my God. He was like, what? What? Come again? Buck is Buck Africa, but his real name is Um, so I'm going to use that to refer to him. He is the ex-husband of Pam Africa and the father of Rose and Pixie. After having a lot of interference from Alberta and Rhea, Um left Move around the time that his oldest daughter was approaching the age of menstruation, and of course, therefore ready to marry off, which is exactly what Move did when she was just 14. Um was working as a long-haul truck driver after he left Pam and Move, so he wasn't around a lot and he was told very little, especially about 12-year-old Pixie and 18-year-old Deesh. I was told that they was all ready, 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 boyfriend and girlfriend. She would probably get pregnant anyway, and then maybe be some other boy. And then next time, but they, they, they was encouraging it to be Deesh because they already had something going, and why not? And after I objected to it, I basically backed down. According to Move Law, couples are considered married once they have sex. And with 13-year-old Pixie, eight months pregnant, they are, by move law, already technically married. By Pennsylvania law, they are not married. And Pixie's pregnancy would be considered statutory rape because the age of consent is 16. Pixie was 12 when she got pregnant. This is from an interview I did with Pixie before she escapes move with her five children. It was the whole thing about Rhea telling me I had to, telling me to marry Kevin so that he wouldn't leave. I refused to do that. She then tried to get me to marry Bob. I refused to do that. Supporters 19-year-old Kevin Price and 21-year-old Bob Massey were unaware that 12-year-old Pixie had been directed by Rhea to seduce them. Pixie, a 12-year-old child, is saying no to the move cult, but the move cult does not take no for an answer. With a period and like ready to have kids and like how it's basically a sin for me to be ready to have kids and not do it. Move belief is that if a girl is menstruating, they must get pregnant and the mate is chosen for them. What about Deesh? And I'm like, I don't like him. We don't even get along. You have to marry someone and you can't just be around here. And it was even said that people that don't do what they're supposed to do can't be around the organization, which is you being exiled from your whole family. Had to do what I had to do because I didn't want to be put out or anything. This threat is used all the time in Move. And at just 12 years old, Pixie, of course, fears being homeless and alone. 12-year-old Pixie finally just gives in and has sexual intercourse with 18-year-old Deesh. I like made it very clear, like, I don't want to get pregnant. I do not want to get pregnant. I want to use something like, and we can just tell them that we're trying. And basically said no one's checking to see if you're getting pregnant or whatever, but condoms are not part of our belief. And We're not going to use them, even though he had them. And then I got pregnant right away. So I was really not happy with it. On top of the fact that we didn't get along very well. 
The MOVE members, both male and female, born into this alleged cult, seem to have been given no choice when it came to these forced underage, non-legal MOVE marriages. The adults who joined MOVE as members, including Pixie's own parents, had lived in the system and likely knew the age of consent laws. The same is to be assumed for all of the adult MOVE supporters. Some of these MOVE supporters by profession were mandated reporters for any kind of child abuse, teachers, psychologists, academics, lawyers, and even medical doctors. They all knew that Pixie was Pam's daughter, how old she was, and how old Deesh was. 21-year-old Rain Robbins, formerly Rain Africa, grew up in MOVE, and this is her take on why no adults intervened on behalf of 12-year-old Pixie. They were told it was okay. Told They were told it was cultural, which is absolutely disgusting to me. A professionally mandated reporter for child abuse that was both a MOVE and Mumia supporter recently told Rain that Pixie's pregnancy and the other underage girls getting pregnant was just, quote, a different kind of child rearing and that she considered it cultural. And this person was not the only white supporter expressing this. Racism was so blatant that people could believe that this was just cultural. These are anarchists and people who are completely against the American government and government itself. They actually believed what Vincent Leapart said when he said self-government. And that's what MOVE told them. And they were perfectly okay with it as long as they were gaining the feelings of validation, as long as they were gaining money, as long as they were gaining social stature. They were okay with it. Do you think they also felt a sense of specialness or elevation as a supporter by being invited to Pixie's wedding? Yeah, it is the revolutionary elite. I think the entire movement who witnessed this should be held accountable. No one is questioning Alberta, Ramona, Pam, Sue, Rhea. And so it would be a natural conclusion that the children born into MOVE who are alleging abuse now did not speak out then because all of these adults had signed off on all the blatant abuse, ignored red flags, or seemingly, in the case of the authorities, turned a blind eye. So while MOVE headquarters is wedding central, Burlington County detectives are trying to interview MOVE members about John Gilbride's murder. And finally, someone agrees to come in. Gary Wonderland. This is Jack Gilbride. Came in to talk to the Burlington County. Gary Wonderland meets with detectives. We are unsure of the date, but guesstimate it is before November 22nd, Gary and Alberta's Elkton wedding date. And they actually showed him pictures. Of John's body? Yes. And Gary must have gone back to Alberta and Rhea about the photos, based on what Kevin Price is then told. I was warned by Rhea that if I went in, that that would happen. Um, And she's like, and you know how they can doctor photos. I mean, photographs don't mean anything. Mario says that Gary was very open about the fact that he had gone in to meet with police. He seemed really proud of himself for the, because of the fact that he didn't tell them anything. They asked me all these questions. I told them, I, how would I know? Maybe you all killed him. Maybe John's not dead. And so he just seemed really pleased with himself, really regurgitating misinformation that had been spewing from Bert ever since John's murder. After Gary Wonderland goes in, it is believed that right before Thanksgiving, which in the year 2002 was November 28th, that Alberta goes in to meet with detectives. We know this because detectives told Jack Gilbride, but also because Wit Africa remembers it. I think it was Mona who went with her. Mona is Ramona Africa, the only adult who was able to escape the move headquarters on Osage Avenue on May 13th, 1985. Mario tells me that Alberta bringing Ramona Africa with her is part of a core move strategy. 
because of her notoriety, because of how outspoken she is and what they called her fame, her, especially when it came to the city or anyone that they wanted to intimidate. She was basically their gun in their waistband. Really how she was used was as a weapon. And really send the message and reinforce what Philadelphia was really communicating was that they didn't want to move. You could possibly have an international issue on your hands at any given moment. Wit Africa is at MOVE headquarters when Alberta returns from her meeting with detectives. And she just burnt them up with MOVE law, unloaded them, MOVE law on them. She let them have it. And then they left her alone. When she got back, she didn't act worried. Since John's murder... The Gilbride family is getting weekly phone updates from the Burlington County detectives. And in the first part of December, they again make the three-hour drive up to meet with the investigative team in person. This is Jack Gilbride again. Uh, We've got to be about 12, 15 people sitting around this big table. We're going to recommend an investigative grand jury. We can always use the state police and the FBI to help us. Their strategy is an investigative grand jury, which would mean, one, subpoena power for witnesses, documents, bank records, phone records. Two, subpoenas can be issued for out-of-state witnesses and documents. And three, an investigative grand jury is secretive, which could make fearful witnesses more likely to testify truthfully. Based on my freedom of information request to the FBI, the FBI was definitely involved in the John Gilbride case an FBI memorandum dated October 9th, 2002. The body of the memorandum states that Burlington County Prosecutor's Office requests FBI assistance, quote, as their investigation to date has revealed numerous possible outcomes and oversees aspects regarding the homicide. And it is requested that a new domestic police cooperation case be opened. At both the top and bottom of the body of the memorandum, it says, in bold and all caps, armed and dangerous. Background checks were conducted regarding known or suspected MOVE members, as well as four properties associated with a MOVE organization. And then there is mention in the evidence list of a CD of aerial photographs. Investigators obtained toll bridge tapes into Philadelphia. They searched two lockers at U.S. Air at the Philadelphia International Airport. The TSU computerized ballistics database was utilized, and photographs of MOVE members are mentioned. Of the pages I have received, the Philadelphia police involvement is not mentioned at all. Did the detectives give you any idea about how many witnesses they wanted to call for this investigative grand jury? And they had about 36 or so numbered people that would be called in to testify. Did they tell you if they had a target for the investigative grand jury? Yes. The Gilbrides leave the meeting feeling confident that detectives are going down the path of assembling this investigative grand jury. They developed a PowerPoint presentation. The police did? Yeah. And they presented it to the prosecutor, and they presented it other places too, by the way, but to the prosecutor, and he decided that they don't have enough to bring in a uh, grand jury and it never got any further until the prosecutor stopped it. Why did Burlington County Prosecutor Robert Bernardi say no to an investigative grand jury? The entire Gilbride family is disappointed, frustrated, and incredibly grief-stricken as they prepare for Christmas 2002 to be the first holidays without John. But I called my mom, Drew. 
something that nobody who, you know, parents should ever have to go through. She would just say, I just want to be with him. I want to be with him. I want to be with him. While Jack and Francis are grieving, they are also worrying that John's son, Zachary, is growing up only with the move perspective and beliefs, including the one that all babies must be home births because it's natural, in accordance with mama nature, and keeps the age of the mothers under wraps, as is the case when 13-year-old Pixie goes into labor with her first of five children at the beginning of February 2003. She's never seen a doctor and has not received prenatal care. The pregnancy itself was really hard. There was a lot of lower abdominal pain, lower back pain. Pixie wanted to record this interview specifically about giving birth at just 13 and move headquarters. This is her story. I woke up and there was like a gush all in the bed. I was having contractions and I was starting to get like hot flashes and stuff. And then I'm like walking back and forth. I had a little like trickle of water come out and I was walking back and forth because they say when you're in labor, you're supposed to walk. So I was like walking up and down the steps and like walking back and forth. At this point, Robin and Mike lived on the third floor and they were like between in the kitchen and like on the step. Robin and Mike Africa Jr. were living in MOVE headquarters. Their MOVE marriage was also coordinated by Alberta right after Robin turned 15, which was four months before Mike turned 19. No one else was in the room at the time. It was just me and my husband in our bedroom. At that point, Bert walks in with her son, Zach, and she starts telling me like, no, no wonder like you're in labor so long. You don't even know what the fuck you're doing. You're sitting down. How the fuck is a baby supposed to come out when you're sitting? And I tried to explain to her, I've been walking for hours. It hurt so bad that I sat down and she just waved her hand, basically telling me to shut up. Like she didn't believe me. And she went on to say all of the other girls didn't have this much trouble when they were having their babies. And she told me I was going to have so much trouble because I never want to listen. I was really thirsty. Bert said I couldn't have water. I could have clean rag to suck on. My husband gave me one, which it was not a clean rag. It was my wash rag and it tastes like soap. So I spit it out. At this point, the contractions were getting really bad. And when I came out of the bathroom, there were more people. So there was Teresa and Maria, Zach and Bert, Rhea, my dad. And then in the hallway was Mike and Robin. My mom she knew I was going to give birth any day and she was not traveling at the time. The morning I had told Rhea that I lost my mucus plug, she told my mom that I'm not a baby anymore and she can't just hang around. And if something happens, if I go into labor, they'll inform her, which I kept asking them, did you tell my mom? And it was like, she's on a trip. And Rhea even took that opportunity to say, you see how you're about to have a baby and she's still putting mumia before you. She really doesn't care about you, but we're here. Rhea started telling me to push when I felt a contraction. I told her I didn't feel like I had to push, but she insisted that every time I feel a contraction to bear down and push really hard. When I get a contraction, I would like pause and hold onto the wall. The other girls, they didn't have to coach like this, but because there's something wrong with me, they have to sit here and coach me. So then they started talking to me about the fact that I had a shirt on. I had a long shirt on because I felt uncomfortable being naked around everyone. They started talking about how the fuck am I going to give birth when I have like technology imposing on my body at the same time? And this is the problem with you. And so I told them I didn't want to take the shirt off because everyone else was in there. So my dad, what he had to offer was telling me that, damn, your mom didn't have this much trouble having you. I don't know. So when he said that, I just was like, get the fuck out. <laughs> so he went out of the room and they shut the door. In the room was Bert and Zach, Teresa, Maria, Rhea, and Dish. I took my shirt off at that point and the contractions were getting stronger and closer and I just kept bearing down and pushing 
I started feeling him like he was trying to come out. The head was right there, but I was like screaming to the top of my lungs. It hurt so bad. And I kept telling him I can feel something ripping. And they just kept saying, you'll be fine. Just push. I could literally feel my skin just like ripping apart. My husband caught the baby in his hands and then he looked at him and then he just was like, it's a boy. And as I was standing up, he bit the cord and he handed me the baby and the placenta came out. It was the middle of the night. I was exhausted. So I laid down. The baby slept, slept on my chest. They don't let you clean the baby up or anything. Everything in MOVE is supposed to be natural. And so for most births in MOVE, that means cleaning your baby with your tongue only. Pixie doesn't do this. When I woke up in the morning, I was laying in the blood and it was like painful down there. When I went to the bathroom to pee, it was like fire. I got a mirror and looked down there and it was like, like my insides were coming out. My mom came back and I remember telling her it hurt so bad. And she lifted up the covers to see. She looked really upset, like she was about to cry. I told her I need to get stitches. But when I said something to Rhea about it, she just said, no, I don't need them. It'll heal on its own. Pixie's mom, 55-year-old Pam Africa, goes downstairs to see if Rhea and Alberta will let Pixie get stitches. She came back and she just was like, you don't need stitches. Pixie was not the only child forcibly mated in move by leader Alberta Africa. But at 12, she was the youngest compared to the others who were 14, 15, 16. Alberta only had the power to abuse Pixie and the other children because adult move members gave her that power. Adult move members sacrificed their own black children on the altar of John Africa, allowing move leaders to violate their basic human and civil rights. And for what? This is what the former Mario Africa wants people to know about MOVE. Everybody was left holding a bag of shit. You know, the, the Philadelphia police, civil affairs, Captain Fisher, the Philadelphia media, City Hall. Everybody has been had. You've all been played. Or they played along. There's I think it's a combination of both. I think they realized that they were being played, but they couldn't do anything about it. May 13th was a fucking setup. He set them up beautifully. If you wanted to achieve... The outcomes that, that, that came with it, it was a complete setup. They've always said it's like the whole strategy was to put the protection on move so that they could basically do what they wanted from here on and the government would never come for them again the same way. So they achieved their end. It, it did what it was supposed to do. And so and it enabled Bert to be able to do the things that she did and all the things that, that we're talking about. By the summer of 2003, just nine months after John's murder, the investigation is at a standstill and the entire Gilbride family is heartbroken and exhausted. And John's mother, Frances, seems especially run down, so she goes in for a checkup and comes out with a devastating diagnosis, multiple myeloma, a very aggressive cancer. A year later, Frances passes away, two weeks before the second anniversary of John's murder. Two weeks later, Tony and Lori Allen escape move with their young daughter, and with John's murder top of mind, they think publicity might deter move retaliation. So they give a tell-all interview about MOVE to the Philadelphia Inquirer. That was me doing two things. I was retracting. What I told everybody what I thought was the truth is that I realized it wasn't. And I told them why I believed it wasn't. And I apologized for misleading people. And I apologized to the Gilbrides because I humiliated them. And I have personally apologized to the Gilbrides for humiliating them. I made a promise to the Gilbrides, particularly to John's mom before she died, that if they were investigating John's death, that I'd cooperate. And that if 
um, it ever goes to trial and they call me as a witness, I will testify willingly. Burlington County prosecutors have interviewed me several times and I just told them what I knew. I don't have a smoking gun. I didn't see John get shot. Nobody confessed it to me, but I'm not going to railroad that investigation out of any blind loyalty to any person. If somebody has the viciousness to gun somebody down, there are consequences to their actions and they deserve what they get. Tony Allen wanted to further expose Move as a cult, so he started a personal blog, antimove.blogspot.com. When I left and I started speaking out, certainly, you know, I got some death threats and some other threats, but then they realized, like, every time that somebody from Move did something like that, I would just put it on the blog. They realized that that was actually a really bad plan. So it was just like, if we just try and ignore him, that's going to be a better strategy. Fifteen years later, Tony's blog was the jumping off point for my deep dive investigation into the murder of John Gilbride, which became this podcast. Before John was murdered, he wrote this letter for his six-year-old son, Zachary. Please, Zach, as you get older, don't forget that I died fighting to stop your mother from taking you away from me forever. No matter where you are, I am with you, and I love you more than anything, Zach. This letter was found in John's belongings just days after his murder. And the original letter in John's handwriting is currently in the possession of the Burlington County detectives. If you are finding our podcast informational, I would appreciate it if you would rate, review, and share. Also, if you would follow us on social media where you will find bonus content as well as investigative and podcast updates. Thanks for listening.
The producers wish to stress that all individuals referenced in this podcast series are presumed innocent unless or until they are proven guilty beyond a reasonable doubt in a court of law in the United States of America.